food strategy. And the purpose of that is to back British farmers, back British farming, back British growers, because we want to make sure that we grow more of uh, what we eat, eat more of our own domestic produce. And we also want to make sure that at a time when uh, we're seeing food insecurity around the world, uh, that we help British farmers, help them get the, the labour they need, make sure that we help them with the, uh, the cost of their, their fertiliser, all their inputs, all the rest of it, but also make that voice, in case you didn't recognise it, was the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, setting out what the government hopes to achieve with its landmark food strategy. Farm groups welcome the focus on food security in the document, published two weeks ago, with industry leaders expressing hope that it will mark a turning point in policy making. But concerns have been raised about the plan, not least by Henry Dimbleby, the man commissioned by government to put together a series of recommendations for improving the food system. Speaking to Farmers Guardian, Mr Dimbleby said the strategy does nothing to address fears that production standards could be undermined by new trade deals. There was also unease about a lack of action to address crippling labour shortages across the food and farming supply chain, and the document was completely silent on the need to support the country's abattoir network. I'm Abby Kay, Head of News at Farmers Guardian, and in this special episode of Over the Farmgate, I'll be putting these concerns and more to Farming Minister Victoria Prentice. And be sure not to miss the second half of the show, when Jess Fredenberg will be discussing the Sustainable Food Trust report, Feeding Britain from the Ground Up, with the group's chief executive, Patrick Holden, who has built the document as an alternative food strategy. Farming Minister Victoria Prentice, welcome to the podcast. I'm sure many farmers will be delighted to see the government make a commitment to roughly maintain current levels of self-sufficiency. But there was some disappointment that this isn't a legally binding pledge and it's also quite vague. Why is that? Why isn't there a specific number and why no statutory target? Well, I think it's a really positive step forward. We have really good food security in this country. We grow about 74% of what we can grow here. It's very hard to make that a legally binding requirement because, oh golly, as farmers, we all know very well that things happen. So a catastrophic weather event, a catastrophic disease event, I don't even like saying these words, but, but they are very much reality, can, as we all know, wipe out what we're farming in any one particular year. And of course, we can't control what people eat. I mean, we can certainly encourage people to eat the right things and to eat good locally sourced British produce. But we can't stop them eating rice and avocados and bananas, which with the best will in the world, we can't grow here. So it's hard to um, put some arbitrary figure in a piece of legislation and it's hard to know how that would be binding because you'd have to you'd have to caveat it with uh, you know obviously this doesn't apply if there's a significant weather event for example but i think what is important and what should be drawn out from the announcement last week is that the government is absolutely committed to british food and farming and is prepared to put financial and policy support behind farmers in what they do to produce our food You're going to publish a report to monitor progress on this goal alongside the next UK food security report, which is due in 2024. What action will the government take if self-sufficiency drops over the next two years? Is there actually a plan to intervene and what will the threshold be? Well, we have powers in the Ag Act to intervene when supply chains aren't working and we've already shown a willingness to look at supply chains that aren't necessarily working at the producer end. So, for example, we'll shortly have some news on 
dairy contracts where we've been doing a couple of a couple of years work to look into how we can make those better and fairer for primary producers we're currently undertaking a similar piece of work in the pig sector as i've talked to you about before and i think a lot of the work that we've we've done in the dairy sector will will read across quite well into pigs so absolutely i don't think we should wait for a food security report to act where a supply chain isn't working in terms of food security we've shown a willingness to intervene in horticulture for example by way of grants real money um and making sure that the regulatory baselines are right and and don't stifle innovation so i think Uh, We will continue to do that. The food security report is important. That, again, came out of the Ag Act. It's every three years. We don't have to wait uh, three years to do another one if we feel it's necessary beforehand. I know that COVID clearly was a major disruptor for our food supply chains. And we've also seen um, that the war has affected some of our supply chains very significantly. And, of course, has affected all of our input costs. so we don't have to wait to do a food security report and I think we should keep the matter under review. You go into commission an independent review into labour shortages across the supply chain. When will that piece of work be completed? I'm not sure what the completion date will be. I was very pleased again with the announcement last week that we get our 40,000 seasonal workers for this year. I think that's really important. We're the only sector with that sort of carve out. I do think it's important that we continue to keep our eye on the labour situation on farm. I know, um, and I know from my own background, because we grew plums as I was growing up, that uh, it is always a challenge for farmers to find the right seasonal worker during the week or two that you need them to pick the bulk of the crop. This continues to be a challenge and I really don't want government to stand in the way of horticultural and, and fruit farming, for example, which we know is one area of food security where we're weakest. Is this not just a can-kicking exercise, though? I mean, you've known there have been problems for a long time now with Labour and industry has been offering solutions. So why do we need to wait for a review? No, we're not waiting at all. And I don't think it is. I absolutely would take issue with that. It's not a it's it's not in any way trying to put off any decision making this year we have got 40,000 seasonal migrant workers most of whom are already here or at least have have had their um, visas and so on approved so that system is is working we're also very much putting some real effort into automation and while those of us who've been involved in fruit and veg farming know perfectly well that that won't necessarily replace every migrant worker, what automation can do is very much um, move the pallets around, for example, on a farm, or do some of the literally heavy lifting, which means that the seasonal jobs are then open to a wider group of people. I think we cannot just rely on migrant labour from one area of the world. One of the real challenges of this year has been that last year, 80% of our seasonal workforce came from Ukraine, Belarus or Russia. And of course, those routes are not open to us in in, uh, the same way that they were last year. So I think it's really important that we continually check how sustainable in every sense that sector of the workforce is. 
I think some growers would take issue with the idea that the system is working, but I don't want to labour the point because we've got very limited time and I do want to discuss other topics. So let's move on to abattoirs. Henry Dimbleby, in his food plan, he mentioned the abattoir network only as a footnote and the government strategy doesn't even mention abattoirs at all. Why is that when the network's under so much pressure and performs such a vital role in our food system? Well, abattoirs are vital, as all of us um, who farm livestock know very well. In some areas of the country, they work well and there's a great deal of choice and availability and simply not an issue. In other areas of the country, as you know, um, there are large, large areas where uh, significant distances have to be travelled by those who farm livestock. We've been trialling a mobile abattoir system. I went to see it last summer and it was, it it struck me as a, a very, very interesting proposition. We've got some regulatory difficulties which have been thrown up by that pilot to sort out. But if we can do that, I think it's a system that may well work. It's not completely mobile in that it doesn't go to each individual farm, but it would go to the small town or the large village once a week, once a fortnight, whatever it is. And I think would really help those farmers who kill perhaps two cattle at once um, rather than a very large range of animals. I, I have a whole group here working on abattoirs because I agree with you, this is a area which we do need to work on and I will make sure that some of the grant schemes which are now available and some of which were announced very recently, the adding value theme in particular may well be useful for people who want to apply to have an abattoir on farm or or club together and have a mobile unit. And how is that grant funding being advertised? Are abattoirs aware that they can apply for that cash? I think that we are advertising quite heavily. The grant schemes now are coming fairly thick and fast on top of each other. So what I would encourage farmers who are interested to get in touch with DEFRA and find out what is available. Obviously, abattoirs are major pieces of investment, but it depends what exactly is required because uh, this is, the, you know, there are huge varieties um, uh, as to what the kit is on offer. So anybody who is interested in setting up or, or running with others a mobile abattoir, I would very much encourage them to get in touch with us. One of Henry Dimbleby's other recommendations was that the government define minimum standards for trade and a mechanism to protect them. Why was that not included in the strategy? Well, the strategy very much focused on the DEFRA end of food production. So that is the the sector that you and your readers spend most of their time thinking about. So producing and then processing the food that is then delivered to consumers. There are other aspects of Henry's recommendations that are going to have to be dealt with by other parts of government. And what is important is that we are now working very collaboratively across government to make sure that we do deliver for the food and farming sector across the piece. So some of his recommendations have already been dealt with in the levelling up white paper, which dealt with school food, for example. And we're waiting shortly for a piece of work from the Department of Health, which will deal with many of his obesity recommendations. But it, it isn't possible for DEFRA to deal with all aspects of the the farm to fork journey as you and I both know food is a major part of what we all 
think about what we all buy on a daily basis it's a really important part and, and touches people very personally and it's right that the whole of government is focused on making sure that our food system is sustainable there was an earlier version of the strategy leaked to the guardian though wasn't there that was more robust on trade than the final version um, there was a pledge to link liberalization with animal welfare that was watered down who made that change and why I I never, ever, not once in my career as a government lawyer or in my career as a minister have I commented on a leaked document. Lord Benyon said in a House of Lords debate last week that the backlog of pigs on farm had almost been cleared. But I've spoken to the National Pig Association and they strongly dispute this. What's going on? I talk to the National Pig Association a lot and I've found their help and advice invaluable over the last very difficult year that we've had in the pig sector. I think there is in some cases and in uh, one particular area in particular there is still a backlog of pigs on farm but I also think that the majority of that awful backlog which we were worried about four or five months ago has now been cleared. There are still significant difficulties in the pig supply chain and I am concerned that the primary producer is not receiving the costs they need, nor indeed the costs they contracted to uh, to receive for the pigs that they're producing. And that's why we're carrying out this bit of work that we are on the, um, the supply chain review generally. And I won't hesitate to take regulatory action if we need to at the end. But the government's not going to offer any compensation to pig farmers. Well, we've already intervened financially. We thought it was important with the the money that was available to us to encourage the slaughter of the pigs that were already in many cases too big for the supply chain. So that is where we put the money into private storage schemes and, and to encourage extra kills on Saturdays, for example. I felt it was more important in welfare terms to clear that backlog than anything else. And just a final couple of questions on the sustainable farming incentive. Are you going to review SFI rates in light of the massive inflation that we're experiencing at the moment? Well, I've got the same agricultural budget available to me as we had under the common agricultural policy. And what I hope our announcements last week made really clear was that we haven't budgeted any set amount for any area of our policies. So I would encourage farmers to apply for the sustainable farming incentive and for countryside stewardship. And the amount of money available in in each pot, if you like, is is not fixed and will be very much demand-led by farmers. So even if we aren't, I I think we set the the rates this year for SFI, so I think it's unlikely those will change. But I would encourage farmers to look at the full range of schemes we've got on offer and some of our grant schemes. The same amount of money is available to them as was available under the historic schemes. And I want to make sure that farmers apply for that. I think the overall budget is a separate issue but you know I just speak to so many farmers who say they're not going to apply because it's too much work for too little reward what would you say to them? I would encourage them to have a really good look at it because certainly in my farm we found that it was worth it it didn't require a lot of behavioural change from us and it was a a significant sum of money. I'm not in any way pretending it's going to backfill what what BPS 
paid us in the past, but in combination, and of course these schemes, schemes are stackable, in combination with countryside stewardship, for example, it will very much do just that. So for this year, the rates are set, but what about for next year? We'll, we'll obviously keep it under review. And uh, actually, I would encourage farmers to give it a go because this is very much demand-led. So if farmers show that they're interested in the scheme, then we will make sure that there is money there to fund them. What would UK farming look like if the country were to switch to 100% regenerative farming? That's the question the Sustainable Food Trust posed in its new report, Feeding Britain from the Ground Up. It found grass-fed beef and lamb would become the UK's staple meats in this scenario, while chicken and pork production would have to be cut by 75%. Jess Fredenberg speaks to the SFT's Chief Executive, Patrick Holden, to find out more. So Patrick, tell us, what exactly have you modelled and how? Well, our report um, modelled a transition of the entire farming community of the UK uh, to sustainable production systems. And by that we mean farming systems which address the challenges of climate change, the restoration of nature uh, and building in more resilience, which of course is a key issue highlighted by the Ukraine war, which has reminded us, uh, as if any was needed, uh, uh, about the fragility of our current farming systems. And I think that um, I was saying earlier that there's never been more of a consensus that a fundamental change of our farming systems is needed but that leads to the question what would that change look like so this is our contribution uh, we've devised uh, a handful of different farming systems each of which is tailored to suit particular climate soil and topographical areas of the uk so my farm in wales is going to be different from a farm in east anglia for instance and then we've totaled up the amount of production from all those farms both the yields but also the ratios of different foods produced and then we've divided that total by 70 million to find out what the answers to the question what should i eat if i want to support the farmers who transition to sustainable farming systems and i think that our answers are quite surprising i mean most people think that it would mean so much less meat and it would be a lot less meat in relation to intensively farmed chicken and pork but that's and that's because uh, under our scenario planning grain production reduces by more than 50 percent but what is i think surprising or will be surprising to many people is that uh, red meat grass-fed and mainly grass-fed meats will become the new staple and that we need to eat Uh, significant quantities of that meat if we're going to support the farming transition because there are thousands of arable farmers in the east of England at the moment who are thinking, what what can I do to change to more sustainable farming systems? Uh, Our answer is go to mixed farming and they're going to look at that and think, well, that means I have to put half my farm down to grass and they're going to think, well, how am I going to sell the meat? Because uh, David Attenborough and everyone else, is, and especially George Monbiot, is saying give up eating meat altogether, and that doesn't work. So we think that normal people who eat, and everyone eats, need to know more about these essential questions and eat accordingly, and we hope our report will be a contribution towards that um, process of informing public opinion. So absolute headlines are, like you said, 50% cut in uh, yeah. grain production, um, big, a, a significant cut in um, pork, poultry and eggs. That's right, isn't yes, it? Yes, although, you know, 
some of these can be uh, adjusted. For instance, we might say we, we'd rather eat lots of eggs than eat lots of pork, and then you can channel the arable by, byproducts accordingly. But yes, significant, a huge reduction in poultry, um, broiler production, uh, pretty significant in pork, uh, significant too in eggs, but that we could we could alter that with a different modelling. And less dairy but not not that much less dairy and again you could say well we could have less beef and more dairy because obviously dairy cows and beef animals are both ruminants so if you've got an arable estate in the east of england you might introduce a dairy herd or you might introduce a beef herd you can decide accordingly mm-hmm. and more more fruit and veg and pulses grown in the place of like you say grain and things like that then um, but can you explain to anyone listening just why you've like you said, you you can you can like change the the kind of proportion of everything, but can you explain why you've cut um, monogastrics, I suppose, so much compared to ruminants? Yeah, I mean, the truth is, as Ukraine has shown us, that if the grain isn't there, the price is going to go up, and then for many poultry farmers, it will become so scarce that they can't find any, or unaffordable, or probably a combination of the both. And I think we were already seeing that in the poultry sector where a lot of farmers are finding it very difficult to stay economically viable as a result of the huge scarcity of grain. I think that's not going to change. I think we've seen the end of cheap grain and I think will be a a progressive decline in the volume of poultry that we eat. And the poultry that we do eat is more likely to come from free range systems and let's be honest, much more expensive. I'm old enough to remember that when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, even though I came from a middle-class family, chicken was a -a once-a-month treat. It was jolly expensive. And that's because grain then had its true ecological price. We've been buying dishonestly priced cheap grain for decades now, and I think that's going to come to an end. It's obviously a big transition, what you're you're talking about, isn't it? How how is that going to really happen like what are the can you go through the 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 things that you're suggesting really need to happen to make that a possibility especially especially given like you just alluded to you know the cost of cost of food and we've got you know cost of living crisis at the moment so there are a number of barriers to change which are going to stop this transition happening Mm. first of all for farmers to take it up it has to be economically viable and that means a combination of the redirection of the subsidies, including the the, uh, sustainable farming scheme incentives and green finance from banks and other institutions that can help uh, enable the uh, costs of the transition. And the third leg, of course, is consumer demand and ideally premiums for higher quality Uh, products and that will mean a labeling scheme which enables consumers to identify those products. The rest of this conference will be devoted to seeing how we can unlock some of those barriers to change in addition to measuring sustainability which will be a a key uh, requirement if we're going to get a labeling scheme which honestly reflects uh, the best provenance and the best story which then consumers can identify in the marketplace when it comes to the government subsidies i don't think defra currently get it the scottish government seem to get it better and northern ireland even are catching up fast now they came from a standing start so it remains to be seen how uh, supportive in a financial sense the new 
farming scheme incentives are. Uh, when it comes to green finance, I know that one bank who are represented here today, NatWest, the NatWest Group, they've already introduced a green finance scheme. That's probably going to get more attractive because there's cash out there. It's just not available to farmers at the moment. And then on the market thing, we hope this report in itself will promote a national debate because people need to know about this stuff. I mean, it's important to us all. It's, it relates to whether we can keep the planet in a livable condition. That's it for this week's Over the Farm Gate. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review it on your preferred platform so we can help attract new listeners. And don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's Farmer's Guardian, where you can read about how Red Tractor has lost 10% of its beef and sheep members in recent years, and why almost a quarter of dairy farmers are planning to quit the sector altogether. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. Thank you.